You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. The journalism at that time was either clickbaity, shallow, intellectually lazy, especially when it came to reporting on Black and Brown founders. And I was just in spaces and in cities where I met these brilliant people. And I'm like, why are we not talking about what they're building? Like, we keep asking people to talk about how awful it was to be Black in America instead of like, you know, you built, you're building something pretty monumental. Um, can you talk to us about like how, how you're doing this? Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Haile and today I am here with the incredible Sherelle Dorsey. Sherelle, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Naomi. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I've been following you and the work that you've been doing um, over at The Plug for a while now and feel like we know a lot of the same people. Um, Anthony was, Anthony Frazier was like one of the first people to mention you and the work that you do um, and that's when I started kind of um, reading more about, you know, some of the insights and the knowledge that you share through your media company. And so uh, for the audience, Sherelle Dorsey is the founder of The Plug, a one-of-a-kind publication covering the Black innovation economy which launched in 2016 as the first daily tech newsletter covering Black startups and ecosystems. Um, it's a digital-based news and insights platform reaching thousands of Black professionals, fund managers, academic researchers, and reporters uh, focused on the new world of work and business. Uh, she is also a data, data journalist. She studied at Columbia's University of Journalism. And currently, what I really like about the work that you folks are doing and this is something that was mentioned in your book as well, is that you're not pushing deficit narratives around Black people. You are showcasing Black narratives in meaningful ways around the incredible things that they're working on in the tech ecosystem. Um, you're also, your company is a venture-backed journalism and insights company supported by the likes of Backstage Capital, American Public Media, Concrete Rose Foundation, and other private investors. So, Sherelle, welcome to the show. I would love if you could tell us a little bit about your origin story and kind of how you grew up. Yes, honestly, I am a storyteller. I think by nature came from a big, big, big reading household. Um, I, I love to also tell the story of my grandfather, uh, who's originally from Birmingham, Alabama, who migrated to Detroit, Michigan with his family in his early teen years, um, went to fight in the Korean War, as he was drafted by Uncle Sam, um, got back, wasn't truly sure what he wanted to do, but ended up in a vocational program where he got a certificate in electronics um, and got an opportunity to get a job at Boeing, which led him to Seattle, which then kind of created this whole new generation um, where I, you know, got the, the privilege of getting one of my first computers uh, as a result of my grandfather building a life for his family. And so, uh, you know, and, and Growing up in Microsoft land, got a chance to learn how to code in high school, work at Microsoft, um, and, you know, just as the story goes, even though the pathway was not very linear, one mm -hmm. of the things that has really been consistent in my life is that I have always had advisors, mentors, instructors who, you know, were black and brown, were, were female of various sexual orientations, and those are the individuals that taught me about tech. So it was very disheartening to, you know, read the literature, read the journalism, watch the media, continuously leave out the voice and the expertise and the thought leadership of black and brown people 
um, unless of course, you know, the conversation was about race. And so that disservice for me really led me to telling stories about Black folks in tech from a trans perspective, what they were building, where they were building it, who was funding them, just the curiosity of trying to understand, you know, what was happening in this ecosystem that just felt fresh and it felt powerful. And it felt like people owning their narratives and taking the upper hand to build what they wanted to build. Um, so that that truly is, you know, where the foundation of the plug came from. Launched it just as a daily tech newsletter in 2016, had no intention of turning it into anything more than that. Um, and as the work grew and the interest started to to climb, um, decided, you know what, what would it be like to build the Black Bloomberg? How can I, how can I truly um, start pulling together um, insights and information that can be used by the greater business community and change the way that we think about Black, black businesses um, and, and black, uh, black leaders and investors? Yeah, that's really powerful. And I, you know, as I was looking into kind of the origin around um, the plug, fascinated to hear about how you turned a daily newsletter into like a media company. And um, there are some examples out there, but the way that you've done it is is incredible. And the focus that you have is something that was essentially missing from the spaces that you're in, right? Folks, if you haven't picked it up already, upper hand, usually we plug things at the end, but so much <laughs> of the kind of the curiosities that I had are pulled from here and, and reading that over the past couple of weeks. But I really loved how you started your story by sharing your grandfather's story to Seattle and what that looked like, you know, in the mid 1900s. And I was curious, can you, it's all in the book, but can you, can you paint a picture around um, the role that your grandfather had in your childhood and your teens that really got you acquainted with different technologies and tech tools and why that was so critical for your growth and development? Yeah, you know, I think about like in the mid 90s when the personal computer started to become something that a lot of households were either considering purchasing or just like starting to to you know starting to like make purchases um and like back in the day you even just had a room that was strictly for the computer and so like growing yeah. up on this kind of cusp of part analog part digital you know my grandfather purchasing computers for us was very fascinating because the only time we engaged with computers prior to then was at school or maybe the library right like you didn't just have a personal computer like your family just didn't have that unless maybe you had some resources. So that was pretty major. It changed the way that I was able to do research. Um, my mom was a big buyer of like those encyclopedias across like all kinds of topics. And so um, as things started to move digital, my grandfather was always purchasing like different CD-ROMs from like math stuff to maybe speak in typing. And like, cause like you had to put on your resume back then um, and I mean, I was a kid at the time, but like, there was always this thing of like, how many words can you type per minute? Like that was a metric that people cared about. And so like, if you were killing, if you're like, oh, I'm typing 70 words per minute. So my grandfather, every time we went to his, me and my cousin went to his house, it was like, you've got to go do at least an hour of like Mavis speaking. Um, and I, when I think about the way, and I'm sure that like my grandfather is not a like boisterous kind of guy. I don't think that he really understood you know, the impact that he was having on our lives, but he just knew to like get us involved in 
are learning and creating, um, you know, in addition to kind of having a background in electronics and being able to like wire a house, he was a handyman, you know, he had some carpenter mm -hmm. skills. So he was always building something. And even when I was, I think it was a seventh grade at the time and I had to, um, I had a, a science project and I think I was working on how to show how the various muscles work in an arm. And he like helped me build an actual arm, um, you know, from like a bunch of different tools. Of course, he's an electronics dude. So, you know, I think that he just, he just, that, that was his role as grandpa. Like he was retired. He didn't have anything else to do. It kept him busy. Um, and it was a big help for us because me and my cousin, like we both came from single parent households. And so yeah. grandpa was really that bridge. He was that bridge to entertain us and then to also kind of be helpful in our learning and in our development. Um, but a very quiet man, very, very quiet man. So I don't think that he actually understood how significant those, those movements, even just buying a CD-ROMs on like speed reading or the body or just general anatomy or just math math problems like those things and the fact that we were able to take advantage of them um you know were truly remarkable when i look back at it um mm -hmm. and so you know so that colors my story and it took me a few years these last few years especially with the pandemic of just having intentional conversations with him he's 87 he'll be 88 in may and when i when i look back and just you know you start to reflect you're like wow, you know, why did you do that? What were you thinking at that time? Um, and so it just, it just, it just reminded me of how fortunate I was and mm -hmm. things that I took for granted. And then little would I know that eventually my mom would find this great program called the Technology Access Foundation to help put me into. And so everything just built on top of each other. And just who who would have who would have thought you know who would have thought that this this small action or seemingly small action would have at least led to my exposure to technology in an, as an industry and as an economic driver for myself yeah i'm glad that you mentioned that program that your mom found because i was going to lead into it you went into that program as a teen right and you started with an internship at microsoft can you tell us a little bit about what exactly you were working on as an intern during that time and um, what it was like to have this opportunity. Did it feel that big, especially in high school and, you know, as you went through the program during the summers? It's a fantastic program, by the way. So can you tell us about what that was like? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. I feel like looking back that far, I feel like it's been, it's been like 20 years since I did that program, which is hilarious. So I think my first, my first um, internships, so I did a different internship every single year. So every summer you got a chance, well, in the spring, you would interview with a specific team and you might get like one or two interviews. And I mean, they were very lenient that you could either go back to the team you were with, or you can find another team if you just want a different kind of experience. So my first team was with the MSN Home and Auto Channel. And at the time, MSN was like the catch-all, right? It was like what Google is today. Like you went to MSN and it had all these different like divisions. And on the homepage, you could go search for houses and cars, right? So it was MSN Home and Auto. I think I helped the like marketing team run different sweepstakes. So helping to like code out what that script was. Um, 
it was it was a very kind of like tedious, not the most exciting component of, of the work, but I got to work with executives on just running these like sweepstakes programs. The second year I helped uh, manage or not actually no, I was I was in an, on an internal software team and I helped to create animated gifts, which like today are like a big thing, but like back then we were using them to create tutorials on how to actually use the product so that internal team members could truly understand like how how things work and move. When I think about what we created, it was so primitive because we have like Loom now, right? But can you if, you, if you can only imagine like having to do all these still shots to like create a visual <laughs> to show someone how to navigate a website, um, it was it was very long and very tedious. And then I want to say my third year, I helped to manage a lab. I share that story um, in my book about, you know, like the one day my manager is not, you know, is yeah. on vacation is like the day that like systems go down. I'm freaking out, having panic attacks. Like Bill Gates is personally going to come and fire me and ban me from campus. Um, and I'm like, I'm just 16. Like my future is over. <laughs> um, but that was exciting because I had spent uh, most of the school year learning network administration and I loved it. I loved setting up servers. Um, I love setting up servers at home. Um, it was just really exciting to like network computers together. Um, I, I don't know why I love that more than actually coding. Um, and then my final year I actually got an opportunity to work on the diversity and inclusion team. And it felt apropos because I had done three consecutive years at Microsoft that I got to help usher in other students um, yeah. into, you know, into that, that program. And so, uh, and, and exposing them to all, all the opportunities at Microsoft, going to the smart house. This is like, you know, this technology, I'm thinking 2004, 2005, where, you know, the smart house had video calling, um, voice activated AI for turning on the lights, you know, turning on the music. Um, it was just an incredible experience, you know, and I and I had, you know, great mentors and networks there, got the Blacks at Microsoft scholarship, and that was very pivotal. Um, I only, I think I, I only did not do the college internship because I just wanted something different, and they didn't have, like, New York-centered or other city, other city-centered, like, scholarships for college, or excuse me, fellowships or internships for college students. And so I was like, I don't want to, you know, go back to Seattle again. Like I would just want something new. So um, anyway, you know, that, that truly was like my experience within tech. And it was a very, I think it was a very well-crafted one. So I, I was very fortunate. Yeah. And it's been honestly through the podcast, very interesting to hear how people got to where they are today. And part of that also in, in something you mentioned at the beginning that paths are not linear and you didn't always necessarily know what those things would turn into, right? And so um, you also talked about your navigation of career opportunities and then also blogging. Like you were very early into blogging on your site. You had a site called Organic Beauty Vixen. You attended conferences, you did research on the beauty industry and delved into like the social justice issues in the space as well. And a quote that you mentioned in your book, which I thought was really fascinating, was having a digital presence, a few internships, and a few portfolio projects was what helped set you apart. Hey there. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space.
And so I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to how, and maybe this is not the right word, but how you flipped your opportunities into like bigger opportunities for yourself and like tangible things that you would recommend for people um, today who are also looking to do something similar. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, this was really, really the early days of like the world has completely been broken open by social media and digital media as a whole, um, where you can literally create your brand from the ground up. And that's truly what makes you more unique and validated by kind of external businesses, companies, brands, or what have you in demonstrating you know, in demonstrating what you're actually capable of. Um, a lot of times, like, you know, we've say, like, especially in academia is, you know, doing your work in public. And so that was kind of like, there was, it was definitely trending for me in college. And then it became a pretty incredible revenue driver for me in terms of being able to sell ads, attend events, work with brands, things like that. So you know, the blogosphere had been going pretty strong. And, you know, as the recession hit, I graduated in 2010. So things were still pretty rough. And so, you know, and I lived in New York City where rent is too damn high. And so I needed to have like several hustles. So between like internships, working part time, and then trying to like, you know, craft something from my blog, I, you know, was piecemealing together resources And at the same time, I didn't realize like establishing a name for myself Mm -hmm. in a very sort of like convoluted environment, right? When I thought about, you know, especially during that time, everyone applying for the same jobs, it just didn't seem as though the way that I would be able to kind of find my next opportunity was going to be through the sea of online applications, which were, again, relatively like primitive, like they've all come a long way in the last like decade. Um, And I remember my first, my first job out of college, the, the founder of the company had interviewed me and said, yeah, I've been reading your blog for a bit, you know, and I, um, I really appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, I, I think this falls in alignment with what we're trying to do. And at the time they were in the process of launching a wellness product brand. And I got to help with like marketing and events and, Um, And some of the kind of e-commerce feedback uh, with the design team. And so it was very, very unexpected, you know, but the fact that I had this body of work, although it wasn't great, I mean, not every article was great or edited or anything like that, but I put myself out there. It taught me how to work with brands. It taught me how to put together pitch decks and proposals. And I had some, I had some great professors who also, you know, would sit with me and help me like with creating a proposal um, and really beefing things up. And so I think that, you know, I think the, you know, there's that saying that necessity is the, the mother of invention. And, you know, that's so very true, you know, for, for many of us who graduated in the heart of a recession, we had to find ways, you know, to hustle and to create new revenue opportunities for ourselves. And I feel like that continues to ring true here online today. We see the opportunities that are existing with you know, influencer marketing from, you know, folks creating entire productions out of their TikToks um, and, you know, social media accounts overall, you know, we're all finding ways to to do what we do best or hone our craft, you know, in public and then find the right brands and partners 
and the and develop this sense of authenticity that comes along with and i think that's a superpower that we all have right like no matter your educational background your racial background what have you if you have a phone you know and access to the internet um, or you're able to get access to a device like you could literally build up a business from the ground up and even if you don't want to start a business you can create profiles of your work that become your kind of walking resume um, at all times and so i think that's still very powerful today and i think that we have to be super intentional and super cognizant of how our brand is speaking in public that these tools aren't just for us to you know engage and 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 you know watch funny videos and and share memes which yes it's that but also it is a way to really stand out because you never know who's watching or who's going to be available to give you that next opportunity absolutely and i'm curious to know uh Cheryl, like as you started this newsletter like the early kind of iterations of the plug today when you think about like the heart of your work what is it that you were betting on during that time when you first started because you know obviously you were one of the only people really reporting on black entrepreneurship and the black innovation economy and so what was it maybe like a trend or like patterns that you noticed that were happening in the ecosystem that where you said i need to be the one to to do this what what exactly was that for you yeah i think that i was just generally fascinated i mean i was you know as a kid like my family got me a subscription to black enterprise magazine and i you know loved this idea of entrepreneurship from working at like the hair salon or the dance studio and watching people create their own reality was really cool like going to microsoft to school you know it was like great to have a badge and like you know all this kind of uniformity that goes along with working for a big company but it was fascinating to kind of to kind of watch you know we called her auntie monica I would go with her to um, to like the supply center to get her supplies for the salon. Um, like no day for her was the same. And I just thought that was super fascinating. And she create, created an entire life out of building something for herself. Um, what I didn't mention in the book about Monica was that she actually has a computer science background and decided like, I actually wanna serve my community and build a business that allows me to make other people feel beautiful you know doing hair and nails and that has served her well for almost 30 years 40 years she looks so young i don't actually know her age <laughs> um but you know i think i think that you know when i look at this this journey overall it's always been led by curiosity it's always been led by wanting to see myself in spaces where we don't get a lot of credit or shine or there's always this narrative and, and i think that when i was finishing up school and starting to uh, kind of get back into the tech space or within corporate environments and you know you're always trying to continue to stay on top of trends learn just to make yourself continue to be competitive and have great conversation and ideas when you're coming to work every day and unfortunately, like the journalism at that time was either clickbaity, shallow, intellectually lazy, especially when it came to reporting on black and brown founders. And I was just in yeah. spaces and in cities where I met these brilliant people. And I'm like, why are we not talking about what they're building? Like we keep asking people to talk about how awful it was to be black in America instead of like 
you know, you've built, you're building something pretty monumental. Um, can you talk to us about like how, how you're doing this? Um, just general, general curiosity. There's just, you know, we, as we know, like the media has been so, so, um, you know, couched essentially in these like kind of racist undertones. And I just would read profiles or just see the same five black, you know, founders being highlighted and the accolades provided. And it was like, they're being treated as show ponies of like, okay, here's, here's a little bit of like support that we're providing, um, but let's not change anything systemically. So I think that that was really the, the, the hustle of, you know, I want to do this at a larger scale. And I also felt like, in all honesty, Black media um, had really failed to help even just translate the language of innovation to our communities. We weren't really talking about the advent of 3D printing or augmented reality in a robust way. Kind of every tech column at the time was centered around tech consumerism. It was gadgets. Yeah. It was that kind of stuff. So I just, I just felt like, okay, well, I'll just build this. I'll stop complaining and I'll just build this. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of how everything really came to fruition. And so why did you decide to start with the newsletter and what were those, what did those early days look like? Do you have a team? Did you, were you, it was you in your room kind of writing, um, you know, these emails that we received in our inbox. What did those early days look like? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the early days, like, I'm, I'm not even embarrassed. I used to tell people I was embarrassed by, like, how awful some of those emails were. But, like, I'm not embarrassed. Like, everyone gets a start. Like, you just do it afraid, even oh. if it's really unsexy. Um, so it was just really, like, good bits was, like, a thing. And so I would do some aggregation, a little bit of, like, hey, I'm on the road today. Here's who I'm meeting with. I'm really excited about this, like, Black data scientist. Or, you know, I just had drinks with such and such at South by Southwest and like they're, you know, you know, talking about, you know, funding to black and brown founders. They're trying to raise a $10 million fund. So it was very conversational. It was very much me just exploring and pe bringing people on the ride with me. And eventually I started to think about, okay, how can we continue to make this better and tell better stories? Um, so. The early days really were just me getting up at like 5, 6 a.m., pulling together the newsletter and, you know, trying to move things forward. I was grateful. I still don't even know how I did this, Naomi, because at some point I had, um, you know, taken a severance package from a company because I didn't want to relocate and um, had spent like six months technically unemployed, but I had been doing like side projects and freelance projects and then, of course, freelance writing. So I have this like interesting moment of additional free time to really think through and go to conferences and interview people. And even when like I may have had a hundred bucks in my account, like there was always some, some conference organizer that was like, oh, would you want to like interview this person on stage? Okay, we'll cover your flight and hotel. And then, like, that was like, wow. it was such a godsend because I was like, I don't have like the resources to do all of these trips and build these connections. And so it's like life continued to make room for me. And the more that I pressed into the plug, like the more that it became expansive. And so, you know, out of all the things I tried to do, like, 
you know, in college and like trying to do these like dorm room startups, it was like the plug was starting to stick and catch fire. And I think that people valued what we were trying to accomplish. And I think even, even today, you know, and as we continue to shift and expand, I think people generally get the gist of here's, here is what we've gotten wrong about covering black and brown founders here. The here's the robustness of the ecosystem overall here are all these incredible players. Like there's never, like there's no end to it. It's just ongoing yeah. research. It's ongoing coverage. It's ongoing like conversations. And I think that's why I've even just loved the space of journalism. And I could not for the life of me figure out how do newsrooms, how do they like stay so ignorant of what is taking place and taking shape? Like, it's yeah. so crazy to me. Like, 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 like this isn't really like a hyper focus for you because Again, and, and of course, we're, we're still back to the deficit narratives. Black founders only get XYZ dollars and such and such. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, who's doing dope shit? And like, how do we, how do we ensure that like, we're saying, we're saying something super important about what they're creating and why it matters. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That paints, I think for a lot of people too, how if you are thinking about doing something to just get started where you're at and even if it means documenting like your current journey and who you're meeting i love those examples of like how you just made it work in the in the early days and how opportunities found you too that's really cool that um maybe you weren't in a position to say i want to do all of these things but because you had the intention and um were out there doing the work things align themselves to you. That's really powerful. Now you are, you've grown this huge company. You have a team. You are, I saw recently, actually, it's probably been a couple months. You're syndicated on Bloomberg. All of these developments, I'm sure it, it hasn't been necessarily easy, like being a founder, the amount of pressure that you have. So how exactly do you think about next steps especially when there are so many things that you can can do how do you stay focused on the most important things i love this question i'm going from like well i'll say just journalist to founder to ceo um they're they're some of the most you know the most intense journeys of personal and self-development that you will go through because it, every kind of level requires something different of yourself, especially if you start to hire people. When I think about what exists today, I am always confronted with how do I make this better? How do I step out of my own way? How do I ensure that like my team gets to create and take this even further than I could have ever imagined? From a next step sort of perspective, I continue to love and be a, an extreme advocate for, for journalism, for um, journalism built by and built for black and brown people. And I think about, again, like kind of the lack of vehicles available to help fund journalism in a sustainable way. Hmm. And I think that solving some of those problems could be on my horizon at some point. I also, of course, you know, as, as you read my book, Upper Hand, that was something that maybe about four years ago, when I started thinking about the book that I wanted to write, I actually took a, I actually took a book writing class um, at Columbia while I was in, in grad school. And I was still unsure of like what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it. I knew I didn't just want like, here's my life. Like, 
you know, pay attention to all the things that I'm doing, right? And like be inspired. Like, you know, I wanted something that people can walk away with and feel like this is a guide I can pick up every quarter to refresh my brain or to at least host and have conversations, you know, at the dinner table with family to help give some some level of, of a trajectory. And so now I think about, you know, whatever my next steps would be on a personal professional level, it is continuously trying to give people information. And I think that I have long just been a journalist at heart because I know that information is powerful because I know that the information I received from my mentors, from a program that taught me how to code, from my grandfather, you know, with me in the garage or on the computer on Mavis Beacon, like access to information unlocks worlds and worlds of imagination and opportunity. And so I want to be on that end of how can I continuously build either products or tools or literature or even games that help us to really navigate our minds, our communities, um, and imagine what's possible for us. And I have a special, special place in my heart, particularly for Black and Brown folks. And I was a big reader coming up. My mom always kept a bookshelf of like incredible books that were mostly black and brown authors. So when I got to college, I didn't know any of these other people. <laughs> I only knew like black people. And, and when I think about, um, when I think about the beauty of, you know, the, the, the knowledge sharing, and I think about the beauty of black and brown communities and some of the challenges our communities have had and for reasons that have mostly been outside of our control, um, I think about, again, how do I empower people with words, with language, and with tools to take control of their own narratives? Like, that will always be essential to the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wanted to, as we um, slowly start to wrap up, I wanted to read a quote that also um, Dr. Angela Jackson wrote for your foreword. Uh, where she said, Sherelle's media company is an irreplaceable source of truth for those of us dreaming of a world where work, um, a world of work that works for everyone. And I think in, even in the ways that you describe your story and your intention and your focus for what you're doing now and what's to come, like this is such a, a beautiful way of articulating how you are impacting those around you um, and how you are essentially connecting the dots. I'm wondering if you can speak to what it feels like to be a connector um, and how I know for folks who are like early in their career, who are building their experiences, who are networking, building relationships as well. There's a lot of, of power in being a connector of people, a connector of ideas. And so I'm wondering what it feels like for you to be a connector of so many different things, um, but specifically in um, supporting black and brown people. It makes me feel like I'm of service to my community. I think that, you know, it helps me to also feel civically engaged. I think it's not enough to just say, oh, we're building these great companies. We're, you know, hiring people, all these kinds of things. Like, I still think that we have to be adamant about the welfare of our communities. Community can be defined so many different ways. I've lived in seven different cities, you know, and so I, I, I still just define community both online and offline, but as a space and place where people have access to opportunities and that we are lifting people as we continue to get access and get information. And so that connection point sometimes is so critical. I mean, I think about 
a lot of my mentees, you know, between helping them negotiate their salaries to, you know, helping to find a resource for them when they are looking for internships. A lot of times you're one connection point away from your life changing. And we have to be purveyors and stewards of community and stewards of opportunity. And if we take that mindset, I think that we'll see greater levels of success, particularly again for black and brown communities. And, and a lot of us do this naturally, right? It is, hey, such and such is hiring over here, or, you know, I got that bag on sale, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and like, you got to go talk to my, you know, to the sales associate, such and such. I mean, we do that kind of naturally, especially just, just through our storytelling about our lives. And I don't, I don't see a healthy society where people are not sharing information and too much, again, too much of, of, of some of our challenges, unique barriers, economic barriers, or lack of information, not knowing how to negotiate, not knowing what stock options mean or signing bonuses mean. Um, and so, and so, yeah, I just, I think that like the connector in me is, um, is also just naturally interested in people's story, like yeah. really quickly. And then I will, I will stop talking. I happened to be like checking into my hotel yesterday. It, my room wasn't ready. So I'm like sitting down at their like little bar or what have you and like working on my laptop. The gentleman like on the other side of me is working on his laptop and we just kind of get into a conversation and I had ordered some food from Uber Eats. So I was like, do you want some food? Are you hungry? Do you have some lunch? And we're just talking and it turns out he is like a major inventor entrepreneur and investor. And so I'm like asking him all about like raising capital. And, you know, we actually found out we know a lot of the same people. And, you know, I was asking him some serious business questions of things that like, I was like, I'm, I'm hitting my head on the wall against this. And he's like, well, let me help you think about it like this. And it's like, wow, had I not mm -hmm. been open and, and been so like adamant about, you know, get to know people's story just by saying hello you know, and really honoring that space and time that you have exchanging with another person, like that can potentially open up doors that you would not even know, you know, could exist for yourself. Mm, that's a really cool example. I like that a lot. And there's so much that like, just at the end of the day, we're all human. At the end of the day, we all have, a, have stories. We are stories. And so I think like there's something to be said about, you know, removing your laptop once in a while and connecting with the person that's sitting next to you. I really like that. Um, Sherelle, I wonder if you can share like what, what was the best investment or one of the best investments that you've made into yourself? Um, and that doesn't have to be like a financial investment, but it could be like time into something, resources that you've um, spoken to. And I'll... I'll ask something that you haven't mentioned in the book. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I always say therapy. I think that, you know, I, I, I've been keeping a weekly therapy appointment since I was in my early 20s. And it's just another lifeline. I think I need it even more now as a founder, as like someone trying to balance personal and professional. Um, I also think, you know, just knowing and getting to know myself, I think has been my greatest investment. And, and you know, that can look like so many different things in different seasons of your life, like really yeah. listening to your inner voice about what feels good, what doesn't, ensuring that like the energy around you and the energy in you is, is correct, it's balanced, 
that can be very, again, subjective from, from moment to moment or year to year, month to month. Um, it's really, really investing the time to know myself, to sit with myself, to think my own thoughts, um, and to just learn myself and be okay with showing up how I am. And, and that's been so important because especially when you're young and you're eager, you just want to feel like you fit in. You want to feel like you're making the right choices and you're around the right people. And then like you get influenced by all these other people kind of chasing things that you think are supposed to be success. But it's like, this is not my version of success, but maybe I don't have language for that yet. And so mm -hmm. that part of investing the time to get to know myself helps me to be clear headed in my decision making and knowing what's for me is, is always going to be for me. And what's not, it's okay. It's okay if I don't want to go the same route that everyone else has gone. It's okay that like I decided to launch my company without going to raise millions of dollars in venture capital, but like I wanted to spend the time really nurturing and getting to know my audience and getting to really know what business it is that I'm building. So yeah, it's, it's truly being self-actualized and, and being able to internalize who you are and making a decision from that, that sense of truth. Mm -hmm. That can, you can't, that's cannot be understated. And there was this interview um, on Earn Your Leisure where they interviewed Ruben Harris. And I know you mentioned him in your book, uh, the founder of Career Karma. And he talks about in the early stages. And when you said, like, not directly going to raise a whole bunch of money, but being really intimate around like the problem that you were trying to solve and what that looked like a piece of advice that he gave was at the beginning, really doing things that don't necessarily scale, but you know, like literally putting people's emails in an Excel spreadsheet, like bringing, hosting like little events, really like talking to the people that you are looking to support and serve and build for. And so it's just really cool to see how those pieces came together for you in your life and how you were like, you're a part of the community that you're serving. And so, um, I really like how that, how you connected that. The final question that I ask on the show is just around um, what piques your curiosity. You talked about how your curiosity is what like started this company essentially. I'm wondering if there are any right now, maybe current um, companies that you kind of have your eye out on or um, things that are happening in the industry that you think people should be aware of. Yeah, I mean, no specific companies, but I think definitely an area of practice that um, I particularly love to learn about and watch founders build in this space is just generally around sustainability. Mm -hmm. I am extraordinarily impressed um, with founders that are working to solve acute problems in society that we can all benefit from. And so I got today at a, at a um, at a, at a breakfast, I met a founder, um, a black founder who, you know, has been building in like sustainable materials and supply chain, like space and uh, in buildings. And I just find climate oriented or energy oriented or kind of like green tech oriented um, projects to be absolutely intriguing, um, especially the more access that these companies have and they're very stealth mode you know these aren't companies that are going to like announce oh i got like a series a series b like they're getting money from like the federal government or mm -hmm. these really cool you know philanthropic arms that are hyper invested in growing like you know the next generation of like life science companies or something like that so 
Um, so that for me is like what I have my eye on. Uh, and of course, within the health tech space, just how we deliver okay. health tech better, especially as a, as a country, um, especially amid a global pandemic. Um, those things continue to like, to like pique my interest. I think it's just overall things that are targeting quality of life and human mm -hmm. life. I would love, I would love to see some level of disruption in the social work space, particularly within the foster care kind of um, environment and things that I think are part of society's most challenging social ills that are again, unsexy issues, but need to be addressed, um, need to be solved for. And so I, um, with half a million kids in foster care and foster care agencies, you know, attempting to find homes and safe spaces, I think so much about how much potential ends up wasted because we have kids who are suffering and don't just have a place to call home. And yeah. when we look at the statistics of kids in foster care who don't make it to college or barely make it out of high school. Um, I think that that is such a disservice to this society of kids who could, who need support becoming the best version of themselves. And so, um, so that's something that's starting to really, really, really be of interest to me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing yeah, that. Sure. Um, and thank you for talking about issues that I find mainstream media doesn't pick up and, um, to know that someone, you know, in your space is also focused on, you know, some very fundamental uh, challenges that this country is facing is incredible. And so thank you. Thanks for being here, Sherelle. Thank you, um, thank you thank so you. much for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen to this episode of The Power of Why. We will catch you in the next one. This was an episode of The Power of Why. You can find the show notes at powerofwhy.co. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms.